Welcome to the September 3rd, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we will learn about vasomotor hyperresponsiveness and sickle cell disease. Examine the role of neutrophil extracellular traps in the pathophysiology of aminothrombosis in COVID-19-associated acute respiratory distress syndrome, and discuss a large series evaluating allogeneic hemopoietic cell transplantation in chronic granulomatous disease. Our first topic is a study entitled Progressive vasoconstriction with sequential thermal stimulation indicates vascular dysautonomia in sickle cell disease. Conducted by Saranya Veliswamy and Thomas Coates and their colleagues at Children's Hospital Los Angeles Cancer and Blood Disease Institute and their colleagues at UCLA and USC. In patients with sickle cell disease, or SCD, sudden onset of acute pain, or vaso-occlusive crisis, is a major contributor to SCD-related morbidity. It is not well understood why the frequency and severity of vaso-occlusive crises varies so significantly between patients. Although genetic factors, such as co-inheritance of alpha-thalassemia and persistence of fetal hemoglobin, are well-established disease modifiers, these differences do not fully explain why some individuals have a much higher frequency of vaso-occlusive crises. Triggers for vaso-occlusive crises vary widely among SCD patients, but cold exposure, mental stress, and pain are the most common offenders reported by patients. The biologic mechanisms responsible for the transition from a steady state to acute vaso-occlusive crises are not well understood. On a very basic level, decreased microvascular blood flow increases the likelihood of vaso-occlusion by increasing entrapment of sickled red blood cells in the microvasculature. In this study, the researchers predicted that since SCD subjects have dysautonomia, thermal exposure would induce hypersensitivity of the microvasculature with an increased propensity toward vasoconstriction. The study's methodology involved exposing 17 SCD and 16 control subjects to a sequence of predetermined threshold temperatures for cold and heat detection, as well as cold and heat pain via a thermode placed on the right hand. Microvascular blood flow was measured on the contralateral hand using photoplethysmography, and cardiac autonomic balance was assessed using heart rate variability. An important finding was that while hot and cold detection or pain thresholds did not differ between SCD subjects and controls, there was a faster and stronger microvascular constriction to any given thermal stimulus in SCD individuals. The finding of faster vasoconstriction in patients with SCD was especially true in response to cold detection stimulus and in those with higher anxiety. SCD subjects additionally showed a greater progressive decrease in blood flow versus controls, with poor recovery between episodes of thermal stimulation. In conclusion, the study found SCD subjects have stronger and faster vasoconstriction in response to thermal stimuli, indicating autonomic hypersensitivity of their microvasculature. Additionally, Cumulative vasoconstriction with repeated thermal stimuli progressively decreases perfusion and delays microvascular red cell transit. These data help explain the red cell entrapment in response to clinical triggers like cold or stress that have been associated with vaso-occlusive crisis in SCD. 
In their accompanying commentary, Valentin Bruce from the Robert de Bray Hospital and Philippe Kahn from the Laboratoire d'Excellence GRX in France highlight that although decreased microvascular blood flow does not necessarily result in vaso-occlusion, the study's finding of autonomic hyper-responsiveness to thermal stimulation or pain anxiety is an original observation in SCD. These experimental findings potentially bridge the gap between triggering environmental factors and the occurrence of vaso-occlusive events. This study covers a neglected aspect of SCD pathophysiology that should foster further work on the effects of novel strategies to improve treatment for SCD patients, such as how to further decrease or stabilize the extent of vasoconstriction to help reduce overall disease severity. Our next topic is the study entitled, Neutrophil Extracellular Traps Contribute to Immunothrombosis in COVID-19 Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome by Elizabeth Middleton, Joshua Schiffman, and Christian Kanyost at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City and colleagues. COVID-19 has affected millions of patients around the world with clinical presentations that include isolated thrombosis to acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, requiring ventilator support. Notably, up to 10% of all COVID-19 patients will become critically ill with multi-organ failure and require ICU admission for ARDS. It is hypothesized that such pathogenic immunothrombosis may result from dysregulated neutrophil extracellular trap, or NET formation, in COVID-19 patients. NETs originate from decondensed chromatin, released to immobilize pathogens that can trigger immunothrombosis. Inhibiting NETs could ameliorate NET-mediated inflammatory and thrombotic tissue damage associated with COVID-19 ARDS and death. In their prospective cohort study of 33 COVID-19 patients, the authors sought to study the connection between NETs and COVID-19 severity and progression. With 17 age and sex-matched controls as comparison, the authors measured plasma myeloperoxidase DNA complexes, which comprised the NETs, as well as platelet factor IV, RANTES, and other selected cytokines. They also examined three COVID-19 lung autopsies for NETs and platelet deposition and assayed net formation ex vivo with COVID-19 or healthy neutrophils incubated with COVID-19 plasma. Finally, they tested the ability of neonatal net inhibitory factor to block net formation induced by COVID-19 plasma. The investigators found that plasma net complexes increased in COVID-19 patients in whom intubation and death were measured as outcomes. As a corollary, illness severity correlated directly with plasma net complexes, while the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, wherein a lower value indicates more severe respiratory failure, varied inversely with plasma nets. Notably, with recovery from COVID-19, plasma net levels decreased to levels similar to that of healthy adults. Autopsy lung samples from COVID-19 infected patients demonstrated the association of nets with platelets in blood vessels of the lung, a mechanism that may contribute to thrombosis not only in COVID-19-associated ARDS, but also throughout the body. Soluble markers of thrombosis, such as D-dimer and von Willebrand antigen, and soluble platelet-derived factors that trigger net ptosis, including platelet factor IV and RANTES, 
were significantly elevated in COVID-19 patients. However, no correlation was found between nets and markers of endothelial damage or active thrombosis. As Andres Hidalgo from the Centro Nacional de Investigaciones Cardiovasculares Carlos III in Madrid points out in his accompanying commentary, these data suggest that the net thrombosis connection may be more complex than anticipated, or that the net thrombosis connection may be obscured because quantification of nets in plasma is imprecise. Nets deposited in affected organs may be no longer detectable, or because they are being actively degraded. Therefore, caution is warranted before using plasma net levels as a prognostic score for COVID-19 patients. Lastly, the authors showed that COVID-19 neutrophils ex vivo displayed excessive net formation, and COVID-19 plasma triggered net formation by healthy adult neutrophils, while plasma from healthy adults did not. They also found that neonatal net inhibitory factor significantly decreased nets induced in vitro by COVID-19 plasma, suggesting a possible target for therapeutic intervention. Andres Hidalgo highlights the need for more data to clarify the involvement of nets in the pathology of COVID-19. This is currently hampered by the challenge of developing appropriate animal models. Larger cohorts of patients are needed to determine net levels in plasma and other tissues, and to delineate the presence of distinct neutrophil subsets, or net-inducing factors, in order to confirm these initial conclusions. However, the study is an important first step in identifying strategies to protect patients from the life-threatening sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Our final topic today is a study entitled Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation in Chronic Granulomatous Disease, a study on 712 children and adults, conducted by Robert Chiesa, Tefun Gungor, and Mary Slatter on behalf of the Inborn Errors Working Party of the European Society for Blood and Marrow Transplantation. Chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, is an inherited primary immunodeficiency caused by mutations in genes encoding subunits of the nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide phosphate, or NADPH, oxidase complex. The impaired production of superoxide anion and other reactive oxygen intermediates by neutrophils Monocytes and macrophages leads to impaired microbial killing, life-threatening bacterial and fungal infections, and immune dysregulation and hyperinflammation. Despite the use of prophylactic antibacterial and antifungal medications and improved management of infection and inflammatory complications, mortality remains high for these patients, with registry studies reporting a survival of only 50 to 55% through the fourth decade of life. Surviving patients often experience significant comorbidities that contribute to poor quality of life and reduced survival, including growth failure, severe organ dysfunction, such as inflammatory lung disease, chronic colitis, and kidney failure. While allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HSCT, can cure patients with CGD, outcomes from the pediatric population and from unrelated or mismatched donors are limited. In order to fill these knowledge gaps, the authors conducted the largest multicenter retrospective analysis of children and adults affected by CGD undergoing allogeneic HSCT between 1993 and 2018. The study comprised 635 children age younger than 18 years and 77 adults, 
87% of the patients underwent transplant after 2006, when it became more widely available with the adoption of reduced-intensity regimens. Median follow-up of the study was 45 months, and the median age at transplant was 7 years. The Kaplan-Meier estimates of overall survival and event-free survival at 3 years were 86% and 76% respectively. On multivariable analysis, older age was associated with reduced survival and increased chronic graft-versus-host disease. Still, overall survival and event-free survival at 3 years for patients greater than or equal to 18 years was 76% and 69% respectively. Use of one-antigen mismatched donors was associated with reduced overall and event-free survival. In the small group who received a transplant from a donor with more than one antigen mismatch, overall survival was not affected, but there was a significantly reduced event-free survival. Notably, conditioning regimen did not affect outcomes. Overall, the data reflected excellent outcomes for patients with CGD after allogeneic HSCT. Older patients and recipients of HLA mismatched grafts did show less favorable outcomes, suggesting transplant should be strongly considered at a younger age, particularly in the presence of a well-matched donor. Treating physicians should therefore balance risks and benefits when assessing the use of HLA mismatched donors. As Emma Morris from the University College London Hospitals points out in her accompanying commentary, this analysis is valuable as it reflects data from a large number of patients with a variety of reduced toxicity regimens in multiple centers, therefore highlighting contemporary outcomes for HSCT. Additionally, for CGD patients reaching adulthood without transplant, this study provides further evidence of the efficacy of HSCT. While these data support early transplant, Morris reminds us that CGD patients have a wide array of therapeutic options now available including novel antibacterial and antifungal agents, prophylactic gamma interferon, minimally invasive surgery, and or interventional radiology procedures for abscesses, monoclonal antibodies for colitis and inflammatory lung disease, and autologous gene therapy. Based on the progressive decline in quality of life and reduced life expectancy for adults with CGD, Morris believes the benefits associated with early transplant outweigh the clinical risks. She concludes her commentary with the cautionary message, Transplant early. Inborn errors are for life, not just childhood. Adulthood with uncorrected CGD is all too often miserable. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.